वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक द सिंट टॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द एन मास मीडिया विल थिंक अबाउट द नेचर एंड इफेक्ट्स ऑफ मास मीडिया वॉट इज मैसी इन मास मीडिया इज इट अ नेचुरल एंड अ मिथ are so popular as truly different from sports and news what is not news does media produce collective consciousness must everything be entertaining and narrativized who creates appetite does wealthier media employ poorer participatory democracy does the internet have a revolutionary potential or does it also have massification tendencies and why what is the future of melodrama and of real variety and what is the long term future of mediation we are pleased and privileged to have two sin talkers with us here today Sashi Kumar he is the chairman and founder of Asian College of Journalism at Chennai. He is a media practitioner and entrepreneur. And Professor Arvind Singhal he is a professor of communication at the University of Texas at El Paso. His research interests are media effects and narratives for change. Sashi why don't we set the ball rolling with you um when one thinks of mass media what comes to mind for you what is mass is it is it just the intention to reach a very large volume of people is it the volume of programming is it so what is mass in mass media what comes to mind when you think of mass media and how has that conception changed in your heads from your vantage point as you've thought about this for, over the years well what comes to my mind when we say mass media is a is an equation of one is to n right where uh, a a number of people are reached from one source or so one broadcast. screen yeah a broadcast in that sense um and equivalents of that in print or um television or online or radio as it were so it's primarily the notion of reach the notion of uh, a, a mass reach from one source right. uh, or or a couple of sources um but i think um, mass media may be a bit of a misnomer these days mm-hmm. because uh, we i think have moved a into a very fragmented uh, media environment and two uh, technologies current technologies have made individuation more important than massification you know in the sense that um the 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 concept of the one big screen where a thousand people are looking at it or one community radio of the gobelistian kind where you know a number of people are listening to it right. you know that is probably being replaced by more individual experience of the media rece- reception of the media and um, uh, and you have of course a multiplicity of that so the nature of 
the pluralism or the nature of massification, if you want to call it that, has changed. Therefore, mass may not be the right word, seems to me, uh, the, 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 the idea. In other words, I'm saying... It could be the same content, but fractured on many screens instead of one large screen. Yes. So it's not broadcast, it's narrow cast, if you like. Sure. Uh, although the, the image, the content, uh, the, the software or the, the content may be the same. Right, right. Obviously, there is the whole production side of things and there's the transmission side of things and it feels like there is a tendency for there to be some sort of a consolidation on the production side of things. Is that is that in the very nature of media and how it happens and what institutional uh, forces are usually at work? I mean, again, one, one, has, one, one can go back several decades and think about this a little bit, but why is there that tendency? Um, well, I think as technology has made it possible to have a variety of media experiences, media platforms, uh, media reception, uh, including your handheld devices, if you will, uh, the process of production and the content of production have tended, I think, to homogenize more. Um, I, so it you was, have It's the, a little counterintuitive, isn't it? Um, Hmm. Because there should have been greater variety. Of the, I mean, at least yeah. at some level, there is greater variety. But you know, one could argue that it's more of the same in in, yeah. in many different ways. Yeah. I think you put your finger on it. It's more and more of the same. You have the sense of a greater plural media environment, but I am not sure you're getting real pluralism there. You're getting uh, a more um, standardized, homogenized, if you like, technically superior and competent. Uh, but uh, what the message is. What is the difference between one one platform and another in terms of the message is not very clear. I think you're getting different ways of expressing the same content uh, to to suit individual appetites. So you are not flocking to see the big screen or listen to the community radio. It's coming to you. There's more of the uh, uh, pull, if you like, rather than the push and so on. But the uh, the, the the content, the message, uh, the message is getting more and more narrow cast, more and more homogenized, more and more standardized, and more and more manipulative. And is that is that because of the is that because of market forces at work? Is that because of the very need for a market to have a certain mass for it to be effective, for you to be able to access advertisers and things of that sort? Because I think the the the, the thing that we need to try and put a finger on is why isn't there greater variety? I think one gets that um, a lot of the varieties is only seemingly so, it's not really so. But the question is why? The root reason, I think, is that uh, media has shifted from being a public interest function to being a total creature of the market. Mm. So it's really the market paradigm. Mm. Uh, if you like, uh, since the early 90s with liberalization and globalization and the whole uh, market becoming center-staged, uh, even globally, the tendencies are very similar. Yes. Right? So the corporate interests, those who control the market, those who rule the market, those who want to be in charge of the market are determining the content that will go into the media. Whereas our traditional understanding of media, especially in the broadcast era or in the mass media era, if you like, right. was as a public interest phenomenon, right? Media and the public interest, that it, that it made a difference to democracy. So, so media as an agency of democracy had a strong public interest emphasis. That, I think, has totally collapsed. 
but but you know again there's media and there's media right sashi and maybe now's a good time to go to you arvind there's media and there's media so i'm mean, not all media is news not all media is sports and a lot of these are kind of created categories that didn't exist for a while what where would you be on this why i'm mean, do, do you kind of agree that there there is this only seeming variety not real variety and why is that the case because at the end of it what what is being taken around is information in some shape or form it's narrativeized it's made entertaining something is done to it at a technical and production level but media eventually mediates information it goes from one place to another um so why why this tendency i i know we are belaboring on this a little bit but we'll just stay there for a little bit more sure uh, i mean essentially we are talking about uh, catering to the interests of human beings and so there's a universality yeah. uh with respect to what uh what people we like what we like what we like what we desire what choices we have and so even if it's more of the same clearly the same manifests itself in lots of different ways because it may be a little different for the one who is at the end of receiving and has a choice uh so you know we may say we want dal roti or we may say i want my gobi manchurian with you know a uh, a uh, tukpa and uh, i think it's that uh, so it's all food yes because it satisfies a basic need but uh, also perhaps a little more and uh, i think the choices now in terms of uh, fragmentation of the menu if you uh, wish uh, or the individuation of choices uh, is at a very different place than where it was before and what is it about information that and would you would you would you agree that more variety is worth striving for or uh, or is that too naive a position to begin with you know ultimately i think uh, it's a question that you know the producers transmitters and receptors of information would answer very very differently uh if uh if we stay in the sphere of uh, let's say people and choice uh, then who can argue against choice although we know that you know when you have uh uh 4 dozen packets of cereals uh and you know you Yeah it's not Now, really choice. It's really yeah precisely. I mean you know it's a, it's a very diffused kind of a choice. Uh, but then there's choice also in terms of you know whether I want to spend my time on my small screen or on my big screen and then you know of the 300 options I have which ones do I click on and for what length of time. So fundamentally I think you would say that choice uh, is a good thing as long as the premise is that people are making good choices. and yeah. then you get into the question of who's to determine yeah what kind of choices they are making but again there are all kinds of forces at work i would imagine for appetite formation as well right i mean it's it's not like we are born with some innate tendencies to watch superhero films but it's not a surprise that almost everybody seems to want them so and i think something happening here i i do believe so i mean we are fundamentally uh 
creatures of narratives. We mm-hmm. love stories. We love bigger-than-life characters. That's been the tradition in the human arc of communication. Much before the current somewhat technological forms of media. Absolutely. I mean, this yeah. is, you know, we are in the last second, if you may. Yeah, we are storytelling beings. We, we are storytelling. We, we are, stories, hu- we we are homo narrands. We make sense of the world through stories. Our knowledge management I believe uh, often is stories that we've heard. You know, if my grandfather says you need to bow to this person, that's a story that I've internalized, which comes out at a certain point in time. So I think fundamentally there's something innate about the human condition and its social uh, interactions, which allows us uh, to uh, be quite entrenched in uh, the narrative mode. And just so that we make sure that we don't get the sense wrong, what do you mean by narrative mode? You just mean this link from one to another, this... uh, What is narrative mode for you? Narrative mode for me is a way of being where you make sense of the world through certain people who get into certain situations with certain outcomes, good or bad, and that becomes in a way, a guide for you to make sense of the world around you. This is very simply put. You know, you engage with a narrative like a Ramayan or a Mahabharat or a Jassi Jesse Koinei, and it's through these characters and the situations that they find themselves in, which innately draws us, which gives us the pegs in some way to determine our position vis-a-vis you know, the other vis-a-vis yourself and so on. So it's, in in my worldview, uh, a structure that we use to communicate with others and a structure that we use to make sense of the world. But it, because it's funny how even news is, call, news is called news stories. I mean, mm-hmm. there, is, there is this tendency to kind of create a link, this tendency to have cliffhangers, this tendency to go from one to another to keep people in a state of anticipation. Um, so, I mean, it looks like media is a mode of narrativizing. It seems, what, what, cannot, what cannot be narrativized? Have you used this entire function in a slightly different setting? Or have you thought of it being used in slightly different settings? You worked on community radio, for example, Sarvind, a little bit. Um, how did that go and what was at work there? And how is that different from this relatively more one-to-many state media that Sashi was talking about a little while ago? So, uh, some of the work that I've done is in the conscious use of narratives to create the conditions for people to go to places where they've not been. And that's the power of stories. They can take you to a place where you've not been or they can bring a place where you've not been, you know, to your living room. That's the old meaning of fiction. Yes, fiction. You know, so if... G.K. Chesterton says that, you know, uh, fairy tales are more than true, uh, Mm. not just because they tell us that monsters exist, Mm. but also because they tell us that monsters can be vanquished. He's talking about the power of the narrative to take you to places where you've not been. And, you know, and through superheroes, for instance, you at an archetypical level realize that certain social ills can be addressed. Uh, you know, the classic uh, Horatio Alger's Cinderella story, where the, you know, which is the same as the Jassi story, right. for instance, right. is that... Uh, and I think that uh, 
Again, in some ways, uh, I argue, uh, bring it can be ways of reflecting, ways on reflecting on ways on ways of reflecting on what's happening, and yeah. also ways of reflecting on what could be, mm. and showing a potentiality which didn't exist. And in that sense, it brings together the public interest function that. Uh, uh, Sashi uh, talked about and the market function because the argument can be that perhaps uh, there is uh, something to be said for wholesome entertainment which delivers you ratings but also at the same time can perhaps uh, inspire uh, some families in a remote corner of Bihar to treat their girls the same way as they would treat their boys. But that's, you know, it's one discourse, a small stream in a larger stream of media consciousness uh, and a stream which I particularly try to pay some attention to. Would you think that media is some kind of a way of society talking to itself? It, it's, it's a, well, it is also, it, Miller said, the newspapers are a nation talking to itself. Mm. I mean, so it's more or less what you're saying. Mm. Uh, but I have a slightly different take on narrative and storytelling as being the, of course, hallmark of media, which is, it is true that it is so. But I think therein lies a danger as well. Mm. Um, because narratives are by definition, I mean, it's a strong word, fascist, right? Because they, they, they are leading you to believe something which you are not, which is not through a generous yours, but which is somebody else's, right? Uh, so the characteristic of modern media, which is very liberating to me, is that it combats the narrative. I mean, the shift from the analog, which you might call is the narrative form of the media, to the digital, which you might call is the the break of the narrative, is the pixelation of the narrative, okay. is, is, the, is the current state of the media. And that's fascinating for its liberative potential. So, you mean you mean you mean you mean for reasons that counter narratives can also coexist? You mean it in that sense, in, or in the sense that like the Joycean break of the narrative mm. is possible? The digitization offers you that. To give you just a, <laughs> you know a literary example, right? Right. right. It's more about imp the impressionistic. It's more about connecting the dots. It's more yeah. about a pixelated world, really. Yeah. The shift from the analog to the digital. Yeah. Uh, so you don't have a. Cartesian way of uh, of 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 narrativizing. I think, therefore, I am. Yeah. You don't have that. I mean, even look at television today. You, you you have only ten seconds to make your point. You can't make a cause and effect logical sequence point there at all. You you just give one message. You get memes. Look at the the terminology memes. You know. Um, uh, so the. You just have random bits and pieces, bites, sound bites, bits and pieces. This this is the jargon of the media as well. So that is actually counters the narrative, which is why you have the the, the definitive uh, term called disruptive, right? Modern media, I mean, particularly online media, digital media, CNX, disruptive. Disrupting what? Disrupting, I believe, the narrative. So... There is this tremendous potential, and I am a proponent of that, honestly, because I think we have lived for centuries with a narrative, and the narratives have only accentuated the status quo, led to a more unequal world. I don't think it's it helps to 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 carry your fairy taling, uh, you know, to imagine wonderful lives when there are no wonderful lives, you know. So it's it's a form of make believe. Uh, I'm not therefore dismissing but, but, literature for a but moment. But Sashi, the pixelated world can also be propagandist. Right? It, it, I mean, they can be. You you can kind of do it in many many different ways. 
more difficult to control though you know That's you true. see the thing is it's 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 it, it goes all over the place of course you can do it with great cleverness it's but when you've done a model another model comes more up amorphous, right yeah. yeah whereas the narrative is 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 a very controlled i mean who is the narrator who is the author so and and of course there are differences in the in the in the said message and the received message and so on but uh, by and large those are uh, you know uh, controlled directed and received in the way they are they are meant to be received so whereas we have i think uh, one of the non plusing and the exciting things about digital media but or modern seems, media but it seems sorry to interrupt you but yeah. it seems like this is a world where the consumers are also producers to some extent sure in 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 the kind of world that you seem to be alluding to or the world that you seem to be referring yeah. to because if if there were a world of uh, you know somewhat bracketed producers and somewhat bracketed consumers then as we started off and you were you were making that same point that producers have a tendency to kind of produce things which are similar to each other right which would probably extend to the yeah. extent of narratives as well yeah where would you be on that arvin is 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 a digital kind of world slightly different in this narrative context and i, I again when you say digital i don't I, i know you don't just mean it in analog digital sense no, you mean no. it in this more in the cognitive sense in the yes. way you understand yeah. the world or atomized sense atomized yeah. sense yeah so uh, as opposed to talking generally yeah. let me uh, you know talk about some of the work that uh, sure we've been involved in using what we call transmediated narratives which really are a product of the digital age mm. wherein uh, you may have a story uh, sort of a a flagship story uh, on a web a novella let's say which is an ongoing narrative which can last across many seasons and then you know each of the characters has a facebook page and a twitter feed and uh, what they are Uh, doing uh, in their facebook page and twitter feed in some ways extends the narrative so you may have video logs that characters are doing you may have you know print uh, stuff that they are publishing online and so on i think the point however is that even in this kind of a world or this form of media transmedia as you call it is there some kind of central programming at work now you could be doing it in n different sites but if there is some kind of a author in sashi's context uh, i'm sure you you kind of do it in many different places in the different sites and different yeah the authorship is always there whenever there is any kind of media production mm. you know there is uh, uh, but the engagement uh, with uh, the ones uh, who are uh you know listening or uh hearing or watching uh you know whatever the authors are trying to say if there are portals where they make some choices about you know i'm going to spend time here or spend time there uh their level of engagement uh with an authorship in some ways is more individually determined so i can decide i'm going to watch the web novella and look at the facebook page but not worry about the twitter so i think you're offering them a far more i think that's what shashi was talking about that it gives more power in some ways if you want to use that word more flexibility more choice for people to create their own narratives of the narratives that exist so there's engagement and interaction which can happen now in multiple ways through multiple forums multiple platforms again i think you use a very interesting word there right choice in which you you were making this point even a little while ago so one is giving somebody 
the freedom of the freedom of choice but only to choose the medium not the message because by and large there are extensions of the same thing right although one could say that uh, uh, in a cartesian way of looking at it is that this is what i give and you know this is how you should take it mm. uh but maybe the giving is to create the conditions for people to uh be at a place where they haven't uh so you know i'm uh, i have problems when people want to tell people what to do mm. but i have uh, less of an issue when people are shown mm. within their lived context of what is possible and they make the choices about where they wish to be and it is not that there is a dominant script uh, but the script creates possibilities for them which they otherwise may not but the choice of whether they watch the program the choice whether they do something with it or not ultimately lies with them so in that sense it's uh you know not fascist in my opinion because they are making a choice to tune in and they have a variety of choices yeah and they have a choice to engage with the program in a way that uh, they choose and uh so in that sense it uh, serves a very democratic liberating uh function although people do make choices to watch pornography and people do make choices to yeah. uh you know watch uh, big boss yeah. uh and uh, you know those choices need to be perhaps uh debated but uh, uh you know who determines and for whom is uh, really the central question again i think we're talking of attention right and in some ways uh, sashi if we think of news as as one genre of the whole thing it's probably a little bit distinct from the soap opera or whatever but it 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 used to be after, it used to be <laughs> so th- that's my point that it it seems like there's some kind of a convergence of the manner and the grammar and the register with which these things are done um and maybe it's cultural maybe it happens in different ways in different places and which is why we want to try to do it at a slightly abstract level to say that does media have a tendency to make all its content of a certain type and do it in a certain way and is there a certain converging totalitizing kind of tendency at work here um, again I, again i think uh, th- th- there is a, a a a manufacturing in process uh, because right digitization has already been i think hijacked by the by the digital capital right yeah. by, by, and who are the big media players in the world today i mean they are the ones who handle google and facebook and uh, you know sure. whatsapp and all of that so that determines the framework even of the narratives and sub narratives and all of that so it is a, it is a, there is a, a appearance of digital operation in all of this uh, digital subsets in all of this but finally the narrative is a master narrative which controls the world the way it is which controls the status quo as it is whereas i i was saying that the digital technology as such uh, the affordability of it and all of that offers at at a distant kind of horizon if you like like a, like a silver lining uh, the possibility of of a counter of a disruption of a variety of views uh, you know which may not belong to this narrative framework to this mm. uh, hegemonic narrative uh, you know meta narrative if you like if, if i might use a word so that is that is where i see the, the possibility and those are already existing in the vast space of internet except that it's 
terra incognita now because the only spaces we know are where the light is there, where the light shed by the Googles of the world are there, where the traffic is there, where the footprint is there, where the visits take place. But there's this vast hinterland of the internet, you know, where there are so many things. We don't know any, anything about them. We don't know anything about them because there's also this, this additional corollary factor of the ratings mindset. You only see what is rated. You go to a bookshop today, you only read a book which is top 100. Who determines this top 100 or top 50, top 10? I, I, I'm not sure there's any scientific process. Music, top 10. But there must be wonderful music outside of that. There must be wonderful at least even for 10 people. That's, that's wonderful enough. So populist kind of uh, determination uh, in terms of hierarchy of what you read, what you experience, what you in the area of information and knowledge is a very dangerous new phenomenon. And digital is the way it's also being propagated. Digital is the way it can also be countered. I mean, think about it. Uh, I think you know, the only point, Sashi, that I would, I would like you to think about or reflect on or talk about a little bit is whether the consumers, the audience, or whoever you put on the other side of the screen, whatever that screen might be, whether they can be taken out of the equation. Of course, a lot of the blame within quotes kind of put on the system or the the digital he hegemonic powers or whatever but does does some of this say something about human nature itself of how we are of course it does. Our, our tendency to consume what everybody else consumes uh, some uh, somewhat similar to the point you were making arvin that i mean a lot of our desires are universal yeah i mean you know we are three people sitting here i think we have uh, you know, our, we've had our own share of a privileged life. We are speaking uh, a language in a certain way, which has a certain logic, a certain grammar, uh, which clearly is not, uh, you know, the language of the world or even of our uh, fellow citizens. So I think that meta-narrative that, uh, you know, who controls, who's on air, uh, who has the means to even put us on air, I mean, those are a central part of uh, the way life is lived and has been lived uh, for a long, you know, since times immemorial. Uh, I think the value of a sane debate, a public discourse, uh, is also in many ways uh, a concept uh, that is, you know, quite elitist, quite based in reason and enlightenment, and what's wrong with that. But it does then privilege that kind of thinking, which makes the non-textocentric world, you know, where you think and express yourself in ways other than the logic of uh, English language, uh, it puts it in a place where it's overlooked, you know, puts it in a place where it's rejected, silenced, marginalized. And uh, digitization can, because it puts the me in the medium, where, you know, in this vast hinterland, there may be certain media producing spaces mm -hmm. can allow to counter, uh, can allow, I mean, you know, if you look at Vikram Again, Sarabhai, yeah, yeah. you know, his vision for India 50 years ago with satellite television was it's going to get information to places where there's no information. Or Sam Petroda, if he's, you know, looking at, you know, mobile telephony, you know, can we use information technology as the great equalizer, you know, much like death. Uh, but clearly then market forces and other things uh, come into play uh, in order to reap uh, the dominant benefits which the dominant narratives 
tend to is, is, keep is, is, going. Is media pro- primarily an elitist tool? No, I don't think so. Arvind, I, I, I mean, I, I just to go back on this issue of um, it's always probably always been so, it's true. But I think every innovation in the media has had a revolutionary impact. Mm. The Gutenberg Revolution and, Printed of course, that. the Caxton Press and so on had the big impact of the Protestant Revolution. I mean, Protestant yes. Revolution rode on this whole else. Bible reproduction and so on. And that is the first big challenge. And, and you know, it, it does so something to society. It does something to society. To society. So yeah. in, I'm, I'm talking about a, a, an impact of that of that nature. Of course, that was a religious kind of uh, sure. re- revolution, if you like. But today, how how can digitization make a difference to this whole narrative that we have seen for centuries? And would you, you know, would you say, would you replace digitization with the word internet? You mean it in the sense of internet? Well, internet is, is one, a part one, of sure. where digitization can can play a big role, you know, digi- digi- can fulfill itself in the, given the internet. But digitization is not necessarily only technological. The technology also makes for fragmented thinking, you see. Yeah. I think nowadays, uh, we, we, that's why I said we don't, we don't necessarily think in narrative story form. You know, of of the kind that we did earlier, we think more in terms of snippets, in terms of sound bites, you know, in terms of memes, in, you know. Yeah. So, so, and this is this is not inferior in any in any sense. You can all put it together in your mind. So you you create. You have all this information. It's another way of composing the world. I think it's head. a way, yeah. if I might put it, of using information bites to create a knowledge. Uh, pattern in your mind. Mm. So that, that would be the difference between inf- information and knowledge. We are awash with information. I mean, we are an information society to an excess. I mean, there's excessive information, if anything. But people but said no the same thing about the yeah. press, uh, Sashi, when that, when that came by. Uh, no, I, I agree that the press is, uh, I mean, <laughs> press like gives you a lot of useless ago. information. Uh, no, no, which, I, I mean the printing press. So when Gutenberg oh, came yeah. by, people said the same thing, that I mean, there's just far too many books to read. They're just, it's just crazy. But anyway, that's the way these things go. Um, yeah, no, I think the, the the huge reproduction of the Bible and you know the, the, yeah. the common way the Bible was read, it helped uh, this whole new religious order or you know a challenge to the old order, which said we don't need the church to access God; we have a direct access to God. I mean, you know, right. it, it was a very radical move, and this yeah. whole Lutherism and so on. So I think. Uh, so for uh, you, digitization slash internet has revolutionary potential. Potential, yes. I'm, Potential. I'm, I'm not suggesting Potential it's happening is... anywhere yet. But I think, and I think one, what we should do is look at that potential and develop that potential and make that potential, uh, you know, people more and more conscious or aware of that potential in order for policymakers, if they might, to put this whole realm, this whole media uh, purposefully back in the public sector realm, you know, in, in, as, as a public interest realm, rather than it being just a, a market entertainment force, which is what it is, I think, by and large. And you refer to the news, that's what's happened to the news. News has become a news show, as you said, because the entertainment paradigm model dominates. Uh, so whether it's news, whether it's your sitcom, whether it's your big boss, they all have to have that ratings so what you know, is what is objective. not news sashi what what i mean you've been in some of these newsrooms what is not news what do you decide what what what's the what's the nose of a news editor like that's very interesting what is news how do you determine what is news yeah it's very simple today. You determine what is news by determining what's coming on the rival channels and rival newspapers. <laughs> when the editor of a newspaper says we missed a story, what does he or she mean? 
There's a whole lot of things happening out there in the world. He doesn't know whether he's got all of he hasn't got all of them. All that he which means is which is the homogenizing force. Yes, which is absolutely. Ten so, channels carrying the same absolutely, thing. Absolutely, because he says days. my channel or my newspaper has missed the story would mean another channel or other newspaper has carried a story which I haven't. So the pressure on journalists is therefore to carry the same set of stories so that none of them misses a story. Except for the exclusive once in a while break, you know, exclusive break scoop and so on. So, which is how you get the same headlines in the same order when you switch channels at prime time. Which is why you get the same discussion on news hours when you on prime time because they are all don't want to miss that story. Whether it's a boy in the tube well or whether it is a, you know a rape of a, a, a origin of, sure. of, a, of a poor woman in, in in Bihar. So this is the way it's happening. So. There's a and complicitness how, how, how in the way it happens. How cultural is this? How different would it be in in Botswana and when you 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 worked in some of the other parts of the world? I mean, how much of this is cultural? Because one has to be a little careful about making universal claims from situations that might be at the end of it situated or narrow in some shape or form. Um, I mean, clearly, any perspective you know we have is partial and partisan, and hence, by its very nature, problematic. So, you know, that's a humbling reminder to uh, oneself. And so, uh, clearly, I think you know uh, the the context, the container under discussion. You know, whether it's a country or you know what kind of a uh, political system it has, you know, what kind of a public discourse is there, what's the role of the media in that public discourse, these would be factors which would play no, into... But for example, entertainment, and, you mm-hmm. know, soap operas, mm-hmm. just, just as a case in point, mm-hmm. is the formula more or less the same around the world? And... Yes, in in uh, the formula is the same uh, in that uh, it is episodic, in that uh, a story continues, one stays with a certain set of characters uh, which breeds identification, which allows you to get into their lives. Uh, and, uh, you know, going back to uh, Charles Dickens and, you know, his... Uh, episodic nature of whether it's Oliver Twist or uh, David Copperfield, you know, people are waiting to hear the next uh, episode which he recites and then it's uh, printed. So I think that basic notion of an ongoing story, what happens next, what happens next is uh, something which is quite central to, you know, whether you're enjoying sports you know, what's going to happen next? Are we going to beat them? Uh, are we going to, you know, pull something out of our uh, hat uh, at a time when it doesn't seem likely? I think it's those elements which speak to us uh, in the way that, let's call it, has become part of our DNA, uh, part of well, our That's programming. probably who we are, so the media just exploits that. Media does a great job of... Uh, you know, creating that kind of an appetite and sustaining it and then giving you a menu of offerings and taking you places where, you know, again, you've not been. So, for example, if one were to talk of some social interest messages or this, you need to carry out some kind of social change and you made some reference a little while ago, do you feel compelled to make it entertaining for it to have this somewhat narrativized kind of structure? Is that the only way it works, rather? I mean, I mean, because there is, again, there's no one camp or the other. I think, is that the only way it works for us? Well, uh, reach is clearly important. Mm-hmm. And not just reach, but, uh, you know, staying 
uh, with something is important. And it seems that if, you know, there's a dull, boring, one-shot message, you tune off uh, right away. So uh, there's something inherent about uh, uh, a genre or entertainment or, you know, the nature of the hook or what's going to happen next uh, which helps create and sustain these discourses uh, over a period of time. And we know that we are not just thinking beings, and so we are also feeling uh, beings. And if that's the case, then you know one has to create the conditions for people to engage uh, with uh, a message over a period of time uh, emotionally and uh, 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 as as well as, you know, with the cognitive, rational mind. And uh, it's during uh, this process of sense-making when you're having conversations with others who may have been exposed to a similar uh, narrative that, uh, you know, certain decisions may come through. It's a slow, unwinding kind of a process. And it takes a long time. And So all messages on these kinds of media, platforms, infrastructure would have some emotional content or the other. Now to varying degrees, it may be varyingly melodramatic and so on, but it's unlikely for there to be a channel to discuss papers of organic chemistry. Or uh, Very yeah. unlikely that it would support itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then obviously it could get hijacked and some kind of films could get made in different kind of ways, but... So it's yeah. So in that sense, it's for a certain kind of information uh, said in a certain kind of way. I think the heart is as important as the mind. Obviously, you know, and you you need you need to appeal because to the heart. Because there is non-emotional information out there. At the end of it, we're talking about some kind of a black box media infrastructure which mediates or enables one to access information in the world. Mm-hmm. That is all kinds of information. Some of it is almost non-emotional. Obviously, it's. it's emotional to some extent or the other to for somebody the, uh, we we don't know that it's a mediation that sometimes makes it emotional i mean we know that very well enough if you look at the uh, indian news channels in prime time uh, sure. perhaps a neutral uh, subject is made blown all out of proportion and made emotional made into a national security issue sometimes or made into a liver die, die of, issue uh, Sashi, in order to make in, it entertaining Sashi, we are still in the realm of news and events and happenings yep. i think what i think i'm just trying to use the notion of information in a broader sense information is after all information and there is obviously a way in which somebody in japan gets to learn about a new patent getting filed for a new kind of aerodynamic, whatever, whatever, in Argentina. And there's a way in which it travels from there to there and travels on a very similar kind of, travels on the same thing. And now, obviously, there is no news channel involved. Now, the question is whether for transmission and reception for of those kinds of information, not all of which is emotional, the same kind of forces are at work. And whether... Again, there are agglomeration tendencies, consolidating tendencies. There would be regulatory tendencies, I think. You Mm. know, we know the oral tradition, for instance, Mm. in in India, whether it's in the Hindu tradition or Buddhist tradition, we have not written down anything for until pretty recently on a historical scale, right? (laughs) It was transmitted orally generation after generation for several centuries. And yet we know... I hope we know most of what the Vedas originally were, or most of what the Pali Buddhist, uh, you know, uh, script now tells and us. And this is knowledge happened. of all forms, fairly metaphysical stuff, and yeah, yeah, metaphysical I mean, at that time. Sure. So 
that's a form of information communication down the generations, uh, which has no. Does it have emotional value? It probably has, but it has. It it was it was a human necessity for continuity, right? Mm. The, the the human instinctive kind of necessity for continuity in terms of an intellectual continuity, a civilizational continuity that that created this form of communication of oral transmission. The advantage or the the unique aspect of the digital media, again, in my opinion, is that it challenges an intervening huge space and time of the tyranny of the written word. We are now rediscovering sound, the spoken word, the visual, and and the spoken, the, the auricular, and the, and the visual, and so on. And this this is what we call simply multimedia. But but the privileging of the written text uh, is, I think, being challenged because of digitization by the by the by the oral, by the visual. But even that privileging is just six hundred years old. Is, for is, all is, practical purposes, it's from yeah. the Gutenberg. Yes, and that had its own. I think um, I, I'm, that's, I'm not denying the advantages that came to mankind. The benefits sure. are huge, but why? Why should human capacity, which is not just about reading, it's about hearing and about seeing, yeah. and your sense of intuition. We have all, kind, all senses are uh, all of these, and in the digital yeah. world, all these are coming together. When with, when you say multiple surround sound in a in a theater today, it's actually approximating to human sense of sound. Mm. And I don't see how, why the the visual should be, uh, you know, incarcerated or imprisoned in that rectangular square. It's always been in that, you know, for either cinema or your uh, television <laughs> screen or your handheld screen. Whereas human eye sees panoptically, it sees in one eight. Why, why? So maybe that will also change through digitization. So this, this I think is a liberative, disruptive kind of potential of of, of digitization, which may therefore also at, attack. Narrative as we have traditionally understood it. Not, I mean, Arvind, this more nuanced take on it. I'm, I'm talking about the general understanding of narrative as something as a storytelling, a linear as a, story which goes from a one to B place to, to another C, yeah. in the same, yeah, yeah. Yeah. same and ends form. with the same conclusion because that is status quoist and it needs mm-hmm. to be that for all of us to live very orderly mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. I really uh, want to underscore this point of the tyranny of the text, you know, which has its grammar which has uh, its own uh, elitism and i think we for hundreds of years uh, you know have uh, privileged the scientific word that is based on text and there's nothing wrong with it that's <laughs> terrific uh, but to the exclusion of other ways of knowing and expressing yeah and if we have gone from who says that to where is that written yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you yeah. know, and God forbid if it's not peer reviewed, you yes. know, it's no good. <laughs> yes. And uh, I think uh, that hegemonic uh, orientation, which is uh, so invisible because you're so deeply steeped in it, is now being questioned because the digitized media allows you the possibility of expressing yourself with a grammar and a script that goes beyond the text. But as one would expect, even that is not totally non-problematic because then one has struggle for credibility. How do you know what is true and untrue and correct and incorrect and things of that sort, right? Because eventually... But just because it's written, it gives it an... Uh, it gives Appearance an authority. Of, it gives yeah. it a you know it gives an imprimatur of authority, but it need not be true. Yeah. I mean, most <laughs> most of the fraud perpetuated on civilization is by these by sure. these forms of authority. I, I remember there's a, a three thousand year old I mean Sumerian text which says that which is not recorded does not exist. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. This is saying. I mean, it, it shows. It says that unless it's written out there, because it it makes you circ, you know, to to follow that. Yeah. It circumscribes you to following that. It restricts you to that. So the written, uh, the, that's also part of the tyranny of the text. It's not just the the form of the writing, but also the social impact, the political implications, the hierarchy, the hegemonizing influence of 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 the text. That's very very important. So is free press good for democracy? absolutely i think um, you you can have a democracy without a free press which is not a democracy we have democracies all around us right yeah. everywhere where there's an elected representation process i assume can be called a democracy electoral democracy but look at singapore you have elected democracy uh, but is there a free press there no look look at other southeast asian countries many of them who have elected democracies but no free press i believe but, uh, but democracy but i think the question is the other way around sir yeah. does free press is important ensure, for democracy ensure or i mean if there is free press can it be said yes. as a corollary that it is a good strong participatory democracy i think so i think if there's a free press then the chance i mean then inevitably it's it's a democracy whereas you can have a democracy without a free press hmm. Hmm. another way of uh, perhaps yeah. uh, saying what sachi is saying although i'd never try to put words in my own mouth by borrowing his uh is uh, is that if you can judge in some ways the quality or the health of a nation or society by the quality of the public discourse yeah and if uh, the quality of the public discourse is nuanced and deep and wide and pluralistic uh, then you see the value of the media discourse yeah. and i think it's there that uh, uh multiple voices uh of multiple kinds uh, from multiple perspectives uh, and i think that's the the power in the scribe but now is the trick question right because the question is whether free press is possible because i th- i think if we just line up some of the things that we've spoken about and thought about a little bit it seems like there is uh some kind of a centralizing homogenizing kind of tendency it seems like a lot of this kind of sits on some kind of it is within a market framework and the very fact that appetite is created profits are earned plowed back and so on and so forth across even a few cycles one would imagine that there would be at least on the side of the ownership on the production side which is what one cares about the most monopolies would almost inevitably emerge and if that were to be the case the question is whether free press can be reasonably expected to exist if you know what i mean yeah. because i think if one starts from the point that is free press good it seems like a fairly obvious conclusion to jump from there to say that yes of course it's great for participatory democracy but i mean most of these are um you know neoliberal neocapitalistic kind of economies yeah. at least at this point in time so one is one is trying to think of that a little bit critically if you know what i mean that that is a bit of a conundrum where i mean in that sense in a, in a purely etymological sense i don't think you can have a free press because it either be uh, there'll be some business interest there or there'll be a control of the state there or influence of the state there to that extent i, I don't think you can have a touch me not free press in that sense but 
I think you can have a clever mix of a press which is uh, free to do its business. Because I, I'm not for a moment arguing that the press should not make money. Unless the press makes money, unless the financial bottom lines are healthy, you can't even be bold. You can't be speaking truth to power. Has the press and always so made so money? Has journalism... It, I mean, if so it hasn't, it struggles. You also then struggle to say what you want to say because you're that much more vulnerable. So I, what I mean is a, a healthy business bottom line is useful for the press to be bold, to perform its function, to speak truth to power, as they say. But the problem with the press over the last several decades has been, it's been about profit maximization. It's been about profiteering. You know, it's, that's why I say the shift from public interest press to the market press. That's the main problem. And there the government should actually step in it, as it does in the United States. You have cross-media restrictions. Of course, they are under challenge now. Uh, even there, they're going through the whole process. You cannot have monopolies of the kind you have here in the United States. You cannot own a newspaper and a television station and internet and radio station. There are regional you know, restrictions. There are restrictions on growth, restrictions on owning different genres of the media. That is a model. There's, there are models in Scandinavian countries where the government funds a whole range of the press, from the extreme left, what we would call Maoist press, to the extreme right, Nazi kind of press, you know, because the government feels people should have the whole range of shade of opinion. And when the government funds them, the government cannot for a moment have any string attached, because obviously if you have a Naxalite kind of press, they're not going to... And yet it is your duty to fund them so that they are there to inform the people of what their views are. And people can then make a considered informed choice based on all that they receive and see and hear. So there are models and mixes there. So in short, a free press in terms of fighting for freedom from being controlled by one or the other. That sounds entirely reasonable. Would you agree, Arvind? Yeah, and I'll probably just add this whole notion of, you know, the internet putting the me in the medium that now there's there's something to be said about the value of citizen journalists as uh, uh, as as producers, as documenters, as agitators, as, uh, and, you know, and that doesn't fit uh, the models of, you know, market forces or, uh, you know, working in an institutionalized regulatory uh, framework uh, of but, the kind that we've known. But isn't there such a thing as expertise or, or, or it's probably being posted the wrong person, Sashi, but isn't there, <laughs> so, you know what I mean. So, I mean, everybody with a camera or everybody with a mic uh, in the world I mean, obviously, there's some, some. Hopefully, there's a notion of media literacy on the other side, and there must be something which must be in the broad category of expertise on the other side. I'd I'd pose a counter question unless, to both, unless, both you and Arvind unless there are, on this. Unless there are obvious cases of suppression, which are where you just have to go and shine the light, as you said. So, if it's just a question of turning lights on in different places. But Something you, but, happens. But you, but you can arrive at expertise from the from the users, from the people. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is my counter to this. I mean, you have Wikipedia, for instance. Yeah. For a long time, we scoffed at it. But today, actually, when you want to look at something, quick, first you go to Wikipedia and you get the basic information. The chances are that they've got it 80 to 85% right because there's a process of check and balance and countering which gives you basic information. Of course, it's not encyclopedically correct and so on, may not be. So this is user-generated content people-generated content, right? And so it shows you the possibility of a, a collective people-generated information uh, crucible uh, being spot on. 
I mean, I, 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 I'm just thinking on my feet now. I'm not, I've not thought this through before, but, but Arvind probably. But wouldn't, wouldn't those be, be possibilities one could look at? So, of course, there is the expert. Nobody is denying that there's deep expert opinion, uh, you know, in terms of science and art and philosophy and all of that. That is, that's a different realm altogether. And that, that can also come into the play. So the media, I think, at the end of the day will be a collision of all of, all of that that's available there. That's why I don't believe, for instance, in the concept of the objectivity of the media. There's no objectivity in the media. We know that. Objectivity can only come from a process of colliding subjectivities. If I feel passionately about something, I write and uh, privilege that. If he feels passionately about something, he writes and privileges that. And we, a third person who listens to both arrives at his or her own idea and privileges that. So this is, an, this is a process in a dialectic you know, a continuing dialectic of, of, of information and knowledge gathering and perfecting or, or civilizationally getting better. And that's why I think the citizen journalist is there as a user-generated concept. And citizen journalists have done far more than professional journalists in recent history, whether it's the London Underground <laughs> bombings or tsunami here. The first pictures, the first information comes from this chap who's there on the coast, you know, has captured it on his mobile and he's shot it off to a TV station. And they, they sometimes they credit him, sometimes they don't. But, but you know, that, that's how it works. Yeah, but isn't that too fancy a word for something which is fairly straightforward? I mean, the, those platforms exist. And uh, I mean, it's eventually about clicking a picture and uploading it somewhere. And, you, you mean know. the term citizen journalist? Yeah, I mean, well, well I mean, uh, we're, we're quibbling about words here, so yeah. that's not the central point. I think one gets that. What's the future? Why don't we think about that? What's the future of... So as we roll this forward 200 years, 500 years, um, obviously it can get dizzyingly complex. Uh, you spoke about one-to-end at the beginning, uh, Sashi. Um one can have many, many subgroups and it doesn't need to be at this super massive scale. There could be very small groups, some of which you've spoken about, Arvind. But what's the future like, both in terms of its complexity, in terms of the nature of what goes around, how homogeneous things are likely to get or how heterogeneous is it likely to be? And again, not the wishful one. What is it likely to be? What are the forces at work? And One thing for sure, <laughs> that is it's highly unlikely to be what we think it's going to be. And, you know, call it the nature of the technology and the disruption that it brings in terms of choice and, you know, who produces, who receives, who shares, who makes sense. Uh, technology clearly is, uh, has and will clearly, you know, whether it's the printing press or, you know, now the uh, internet. Uh, Are there always hierarchies even within media? Is there is there a tendency, at least within some subgroups, to kind of accord higher credibility to just making it up radio or TV or newspapers or whatever? I mean, is, are there are there forces of that nature at work? I think the forces of nature at work, driven by technology are ones that are increasingly going to be appealing to all sensory aspects of who we are. So, you know, going from uh, the oral to the visual to the audiovisual to the tactile to... Uh, and I think that's something which is going to increasingly manifest. Uh, but then then your appeal is merely to fidelity. It just It just appeals to more of our senses... So it must be more legitimate. I think the notion of social presence, there is something to be said uh, about right. us sitting in a room, 
uh, and uh, watching each other, hearing each other. And I think what technology is going to make increasingly possible is this notion of social virtual presence or virtual social presence. And uh, that's a function of uh, digitization and fidelity to some extent. Uh, but the the redeeming uh a silver line for me is that there are still 24 hours in a day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we still need our... Uh, That's the ultimate bandwidth constraint. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, you know, you still need to sleep, uh, hopefully, uh, unless there's a magic pill and who's going, you know. And so I think that's uh, the ultimate uh, container, which uh, is, is us. And I do think that... Uh, uh, we will muddle our way through this uh, as we have muddled our <laughs> way through, you know, these pangs of history. Uh, and hopefully... But where where are we likely to get to? I obviously understand it's very difficult to... You know, if, if somebody has sat down in 1480 trying to think what the printing press might lead to, it would obviously be very, very difficult to get to the point where we are today. And obviously these things have have a way of happening and it's not possible to anticipate something like the internet. Nobody would have thought of transistors. Nobody would have thought of yeah. the area called computer science and so many yeah. other things that go into these uh, kind of trends happening. So but the honest, it's eventually still a moonshot. Uh, it, it is, yeah, so the honest answer is I don't know. We don't know, I think. Uh, we do know there are 24 hours and we have a limited time span. And... Uh, we do know that uh, over time we become wiser uh, as we do this Monday morning quarterbacking. No, that's true. I think uh, you know, with the, with the, <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, it's always easy to sit down and kind of give explanations for things that have just happened. I think one totally gets that. I think the with this twenty-four hour constraint. Um, because there is maybe also something to be said for overproduction because, you know... Um, well, we are assuming everyone's consuming all of it at the same time. That's why I said there's a fragmented media sector now. Uh, so, you know, you have these echo chambers in the, in the internet. We are all following the groups that we like to talk about and we like to discuss because we think only that is relevant. Yeah. And in fact, I think that's, that's, re that's the reason why concepts like post-truth have come to be. Because you think... Uh, the, the, there are so many truths out there, you know, because you got used to these bubbles that you operate in space. That's why the concept of post-truth is so current, concept of alternative facts. It's, it's a contradiction in terms. You can't have an alternative yeah. fact, right? Either yeah. it's a fact or it's a myth or it's a falsehood. So these happen because we are all believing, truly believing the, 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 the messages, the information, the values that we circulate in in these silos that we circulate in. And there are numerous millions of silos out there, I imagine. So I, that's why I said when we, in the beginning, just as a mass media is a misnomer, the idea of having one framework, one paradigm in which the future media will you know, unfold. Even if it was unravel. all wrong, it was collective delusion. Everybody thought of the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that kind of a scenario is difficult to, 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 to conceive anymore. So it's, it's got pixelated, it's really got dispersed. Uh, it's not, even the concept of center and margins has collapsed. The margins have moved into the center, if you like. It, it may not have matured fully, but that's the way it's going. But in the, in the process, I'm also worried because 
digital capitalism is on the rise. Uh, the, the, the control mechanisms, therefore, are also that much more subtle and subliminal and uh, insidious. And more so, relaxed. And more relaxed. It just, it just happens in so, you know, the cooler way. The herd mentality way. may also be operating to that extent. They, only there'll be, it doesn't, it's no solace that instead of one big herd, there are several herds, you know. <laughs> so that, 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 that's that's the whole nature of the problem. Uh, and then technology, as Arvind said, is, is you know, going at a furious pace. Moore's law makes sure that the rate of technological obsolescence is ridiculously high. Uh, you know. And it's more totalizing because, you know, whether you think of newspapers or Bible or printing press, I mean, the reach was still, you know, a certain portion of the world. I mean, yeah. you, you can have planetary ambitions yeah. now, yeah. unless obviously there are other, other things in the way. It's, it's more totalizing and it's also more potentially liberating. The fact that we have had a mobile revolution in this country, I think it's been a huge difference. The fact that even a street hawker or, a, you know, the, the lowest common denominator, you know, has a mobile phone, may not be a smartphone, uh, would make a difference to his or her lifestyle, to her knowledge of the world, to her, his or her business, to her earning capacity and all of that, uh, you know, being more street smart and so on. So those processes are all medi- mediated by, by technology and also by uh, what he hears and listens and so on. So... Um, it's a it's work in progress. The point simply is, we are in the middle of this, you know. So what what um, we are probably trying to do is distance trying ourselves to analyze and it. look with hindsight. Yeah, sure. you know, we don't have the benefit of that hindsight. We don't have the benefit of distance. We are we are pretty much part of this. As Arvind said, that's why three of us sitting here and discussing it are as much producing media and reflecting media at the same time. But and like 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 good <laughs> narrative beings, like Arvind said, we're also trying to anticipate what might be around the corner. Yeah, yeah. And which I'm, is a, which just is a good exercise, is. but right now I, I'm, I'm as confused as um, as Arvind probably is about this, yes. Totally confused. But don't, don't be shy to make guesses. I think I think it'll it'll be less totalizing in the future. That's my sense because the the digital is a is a, but is, you are you is, is that because you're going to have to rely on the benevolent capitalist to just let it all be there? I mean, does it depend a lot on of a few platforms, a few mega entrepreneurs to have a certain worldview. No, because I can I can live eke out my uh, virtual uh, identity livelihood in a corner of the internet without being consumed by the rest. That was not a possibility in the analog world. That's a possibility now. So the possibility of excluding oneself also exists. Yes, to sequester oneself. Uh, not to not to belong to the mainstream, not to belong to the torrent, but to be the rivulet, if you like, yeah. the by stream. That, that those those are possibilities that exist, and I think that's happening. We may not be aware of too many of them, but I think that's happening. There are probably small cliche, uh, you know, niches out there where where different levels of thought, different levels of discourse, uh, different concerns are being uh, engaged in. Um, and, and this and sounds like a more robust world. Yes, because if, yes. If, if there I, I, think, are... I think it is. Architecturally, it's a. It, it, it makes for a more robust world, architecturally at least. Whereas in reality, whether it'll it'll pan out that way, I don't know. I'd say that you know, in terms of the two basic Cartesian dimensions of time and space, mm-hmm. and you know, a small screen but connecting you to the world, a small screen that you know, puts your grandmother right in front of you uh, in flesh and blood. Uh, I think those very basic notions of time and space have changed in a way that is, to me, unfathomable. Uh, And 
And I think those uh, forces allow us to, you know, be with our small screen, feel that we are connected to the world, uh, but yet in the corner, you yeah. know, situated by being situated in the corner of my room. And that's a duality, you know, virtual, real, here, there, which uh, is fundamentally morphing our, our sense of who we've been. Yeah. And there's a sort of a utopian aspect to it or a, you know, but you can take a dystopian aspect to it or you can be sort of neutral or you can be, you know, like contingent if this happens. You know, so I think there's all the, the possibilities are so immense by virtue of the possibilities. Uh, but Arvind, that's also because you've seen both the worlds. Now, obviously, there are there's a significant proportion of the world that has no clue of the world where Sashi used to read news. Yeah, the digital natives, um, let's say, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. And, 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 and... So what we are saying there really is that the rate of change is increasing, you know, whether you yeah. talk about it in terms of Moore's Law or, you know, the rate of change is increasing faster than we can sort of comprehend. Yes. And, you know, previously we would speak in terms of generations. Now you know that a 12-year-old is significantly different than a 14-year-old. Perfect. I think yeah. that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to both of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Thank you. you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure.